0: Just at the end of the previous uh, meditation, I gave that encouragement to uh, give up the sense of doing meditation that can easily be running our practice. The invitation to uh, give up trying to control or manage experience. And then, of course, we find everything, all the elements of meditation are still here. Awareness is basically available constantly. Here we are. Experience is certainly available constantly. But the tendency to try and be the manager, the orchestrator, the controller of our experience goes very, very deep. In our psyche, and so whether we look at our you know, everyday activity, our worldly activity, our learned activity, or whether we look at you know, what we might call, you know, our activity here, our meditative or spiritual activity, we can easily um, transfer that control. And so I thought that's what I would reflect on and look at a little bit this afternoon. the tendency to control, and maybe to question whether we actually have any control at all. That's certainly the direction I'd like to nudge us in, towards the possibility. And it's a, maybe an exciting possibility for some, maybe a frightening possibility for others, and maybe a, possi- a possibility that makes us feel very indignant and um, outraged. For others, what do you mean? No control. Of course I have some control. And then we might start to list all the ways we imagine, or, or excuse me, all the ways we believe, or all the ways we might say we have control. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe, as with any theme of teaching, maybe it would be helpful to keep an open mind. We tend to land rather clumsily in one of two camps, right? When it comes to areas of subtlety, either accept or reject, either believe or disbelieve. So yes, it's like this, or no, it's not, it's like that. And both of those are rather, uh, you know, fixed places, rigid places. So maybe we can just inquire into this area of control with reference not really to what we believe or what we think or what we'd like to be the case but with this kind of reference of just keeping on um, coming back to our own experience with that. We learn, right? There's a certain kind of controlling our experience which is important, healthy a kind of necessary developmental skill as we grow up we learn to exercise some control in a conventional sense we learn you know when we're about two we learn the power of no and we learn that it gets great results (laughs) impressive results those of you who are parents you know You've seen you know, what they call the terrible twos, right? Which really means, if you look at the developmental stage of a two-year-old, they're just learning about will. They're learning that, oh, they have a will. And they're learning that they can assert that will. And the most spectacular way right, to assert your will is to say, no, no, I won't put my shoes on. No, I won't eat that. No, I don't want to go to bed. No, I'm not wearing those pajamas, and just and then they sit back and watch the fireworks. (laughs) As parents, freak out and argue and be very reasonable about why and or whatever we do as parents. And that's important, right? It turns out to be important. It's kind of can be difficult for parents, but as we grow older, that degree of realizing that we have agency, realizing that it's important to be able to discern. For example, when to say yes and when to say no, and some of us may feel as adults we're still kind of slow learners with that one. Right? We recognise we may say yes when we're not really sure about it. We may feel afraid to say no sometimes. What kinds of domains that can play out in? But basically, we learn that we learn about boundaries. We learn about uh, permission. We learn about uh, you know, our capacity to. Decide upon and orchestrate and choose and and have views, etc. And we we also learn the the control of restraint, right, which turns out to be important too. Again, if you go back to the two year old, oh my god, no restraint! Right? They've learned the will, they haven't learned restraint. So, if when a two year old gets upset. <coughs> You really know about it, right? It's the tantrum, freak-out, the proverbial throwing the toys out of the pram. And so most of us learn a form of control whereby we learn to kind of manage our emotions. We might still feel the upwelling of a strong emotional reaction, right? But we learn some degree of emotional regulation, titration, Learn to, we learn that you know it's not appropriate, or it's not helpful, or to to just kind of act out our our uh, upset or anger in you know, or something. So there's a certain kind of of psychological development and socializing development that goes along where we learn, as I say, in a conventional way to control our experience, and that's That's it's necessary, right? It's healthy, but it becomes such a strong strategy that it easily becomes the orientating strategy for our lives. In fact, we might say the very nature of egocentric life, i.e. The adhering to the fact that you know I'm the one here that's doing it all. That's the way a normal, um, more or less psychologically developed adult will conceives of life. I'm I'm the one living my life, and therefore the strategy for how to live one's life becomes an attempt to control one's life, to control circumstances, to control outcomes. to control you know, what I'm doing, what happens to me, where I'm going, what I want, etc. And that's a kind of description of everyday normal life. That's the life that we've most of us grown up in, it's the, the life that we see reflected back to us by families and colleagues and media and uh, advertising. There's a general encouragement to go through life as if um, I'm the one doing it all and uh, I'm going to try and do it like this and try and do it like that. And then we come to a place like this or to a practice like this and maybe we come because there's something that seems a little spurious to us about the idea that I'm in control of it all. Given as we've been saying, that life's just you know, streaming through without a great deal of regard for what I want or what I'm trying to do. Maybe we come to a practice like this because we've kind of sensed the, the fatigue or the neurosis of trying to control and manage a life that wherein so much of the dimensions of our life are clearly outside of our control. If it, if it really if everything was in um, our control we would just choose I'll choose happy healthy wealthy wise that's the <laughs> usual right that's the thing happy healthy wealthy and wise and now we'll just take choose that setting and stay like that <laughs> <laughs> right, which is clearly crazy hmm. sure some, some degree of those things but you know similarly ill health unhappiness ...foolishness, confusion... ...just just appear in our lives unbidden. And... ...yet we're so used to... ...I do... ...I want... ...I make... ...I go... ...etc. ...that... ...the idea... ...of... ...that maybe we're not in control... Or the idea of actually relinquishing control seems anathemical. Anathemical, is it a word? Yeah. Seems anathema to us. So we can point to at least, rather, as I say, rather than trying to kind of fix some view about whether or not this control, We might explore some of the ways that control plays out and maybe some of the cost that it has. The way it plays out in, in the world, the way it plays out in our personal lives, and the way it you know, plays out as we really start to get close to exploring our experience and actually exploring the nature of experience itself. So we can see control playing out in the world in all kinds of ways. uh, Our human history, really, is built on... Certainly human cultural history is built on control and domination and warfare and subjugation and slavery. It's kind of unpleasant or uncomfortable truths, but if we really look in any way, you know, in any kind of deep way at human cultural history, our own cultural history, whatever that is, you know, and or, or general world cultural history, we find those elements: uh, invasion, subjugation, and of course, we live in the in the. Um, with the residue, with the outflows of that. We live with the, the legacy of that, whether the distant legacy, a kind of, well, I was going to say colonial uh, control and subjugation is not actually that distant, whether the more recent um, control, the, the, the shaping of elections, you know, I'm not going to get too much into kind of current political situation, but one can look at a lot of the currents around, you know, the the obvious big elements in politics, the Trump government, Brexit, etc. And one can see in the kind of polarization of positions, either an attempt to control, a lot of the rhetoric around immigration, for example, an attempt to control, or a fear of being controlled. A kind of uh, sort of Demonizing of the EU, for example, as, as some sort of big brother uh, interfering thing, and all the, all the talk of national sovereignty, etc. etc. That's as far as I'm going to get into that. But you know, so these are some of the, the broad brushstrokes of cultural themes that we can, that if we're looking through the lens, if we're interested in how p- control plays out, we start to see the same themes. Operating in this body, mind, heart, and operating out in the world. Because what is the world? You know, what is culture other than the collected habit impulses taking form of all of us? You know, and culture is the, the collective action born of the collective habit of human beings. And you know, we also can look at the kind of it's interesting moment. 100 years this year after women uh, got the vote, won the vote, fought for the vote, and 50 years after the kind of in the sort of 60s dawning of what was called women's emancipation or liberation, etc. And then not only now, with through Me Too and Time's Up and the whole sort of post Weinstein uh, playing out of things. Are we kind of seeing in maybe, hopefully, a new way, a starker way, some of the control, and subjugation, and, uh, oppression, and the kind of imbalances in, in uh, the way men and women live together. And, you know, just today there's another big newspaper report about, uh, about um, wages, gender, pay gap in the, in the public service. It's just—it's interesting to see that coming to light, and again to reflect on it. Oh, this is the this is the legacy of cultural control, and we could point to many different examples. And maybe you could have some argument with some of those things. That's okay. When we talk about cultural current, currents and political currents, we might reasonably expect some argument, and then we might look at our own lives and we might have strong views about some of those themes Right? we might feel quite exercised about the terrible way that people control others or the way that this group has controlled that group has imposed itself on that group etc and we might feel justifiably uh, and importantly moved to to stand up, speak out uh, uh, engage in some activism uh, around some of those things and yet we'd also be equally served to look at ourselves and say, well, in what ways, maybe, slight, maybe on a different scale, right, but in what ways do I seek to control others? In what ways are those same seas of control alive in the conflicts I might have with family or lover, and partner, um, colleagues, etc.? In what way? Those same, um, that same basic orientation of mind, that same basic intolerance, that same belief that basically, in order for me to be okay, I need you to be like that, to stop doing that, to go over there, to give me what I want. Interesting to to find out about, not in a judgmental way, actually, in a in a, in a helpful way to kind of wake up to the inner tyrant in here that can get very in- invested in controlling and that phrase we used yesterday you can try to cover the whole world in leather or get a pair of sandals yeah. so it's an image of that kind of you know, ma- maniacal control that we might feel like you know, I want conditions to organise themselves in order to please me Meditation retreats are very, it's a great environment for um, looking at our, our tendency to control. I mean, partly, just by being here, there's a certain relinquishing of a lot of the, the usual controls of our life. You relinquish a lot of just simple controls, but the stuff around, you know, adhere to a whole bunch of guidelines, right, which you didn't uh, devise and some of them might seem eminently sensible and supportive and some of them might not there's a lot of signs around Gaia House <laughs> telling you what to do and what not to do and even though they say please <laughs> they, they can feel quite, uh, quite uh, oppressive to some uh-huh. and especially sometimes some of you may have spent times in oppressive institutions uh, boarding school for example and sometimes it come to a place like this and it's like, oh my God, I'm back. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, more or less graciously we submit to the control of Gaia House. And there's a certain and we might hopefully we sense a certain uh, goodness in relinquishing some of the control. It can be quite oh relieving to not have to, um, what, not have to decide what we're going to eat or when we're going to eat or what we're going to do or when we're going to do it. Actually to be kind of carried along by a kind of the collective intention, carried along by the basically trustworthy feel of the environment of the, and of the practices we're doing and of the holding that's here. And we might get a certain taste in that just relinquishing of some of those outer forms of oh, the ease, the relief of putting down some of that sense of me needing to do it all, decide it all, manage it all, fix it all, make it all happen—that can often feel like it's, you know, driving a lot of our lives. So we can we can look, as I say, at that. the the impulse or the actual consequence, the outflow of our attempts to control others. And then also the the attempts at self-control. And there's there's a wise aspect to that, right? Like the restraint that we mentioned earlier. There's a nice place in the texts where somebody's asking the Buddha about dealing with anger. And the Buddha suggests various sort of skillful means for working with the anger, none of which work with this person. So in the end, the Buddha's advice is to take your fist, put it in your mouth, and bite down on your fingers, so as to restrain, you know, so as to stop yourself from acting or speaking in a kind of harsh or aggressive way. So sometimes that kind of wise restraint, kind of control, for the purpose of not causing harm, control. Let me restrain so as to not say something that I know would be harmful to somebody else or that I know I would later regret. And to res- refrain from saying something that we know is born out of a kind of um, hot or aggressive or destructive kind of emotional wave. So I think it's important to distinguish between re- you know, wise re- what we might call wise restraint, right? choosing to not act out on an impulse because we can see that it would be harmful. But easily we overstep that restraint to the idea, and to the idea that this shouldn't, hap- this shouldn't be happening, this impulse shouldn't be there, I shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't have these thoughts. And a lot of that whole complex of the way we measure, judge, evaluate, berate, criticise ourselves... They're trying to control who one is, how one is, to fit oneself into some ideal vision one has. I should be, you know... And of course, if one is into spiritual practice, that starts to bleed in to our self-image. Now, as well as I should be just, you know, handsome and witty and intelligent and successful, those are the worldly... uh, Now I should be endlessly mindful and spiritual and... peaceful and compassionate mm-hmm. and, da, 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 da. and trying to kind of force ourselves into a facsimile of what it, what we think it would be like to be spiritual right? trying to be our own version of the Dalai Lama in some way oh yes <laughs> 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 that's hard work it's hard work trying to be some, some idealized version of ourselves. And the nature of an ideal is we never, we never arrive. The nature of that ideal is actually we just keep on cultivating. The nature of an ideal is it's always far away. Remember Ajahn Sumedho speaking about how he, how he so loved Ajahn Chah, his teacher... He so much wanted to be like Ajahn Chah. He so much appreciated Ajahn Chah's freeness and ease of being. And then after a while he noticed that he was really trying to be Ajahn Chah. And that ironically, what he really loved about Ajahn Chah was that Ajahn Chah seemed to be just so freely himself. And then Ajahn Sachito started to get it. If that's what I like, maybe it's, you know, what would it be like to be more interested in being freely this one? Rather than, that ideal of what it would be like to be that one. And again, we might look at our own impulses, our own idealizing. We might look at some of the ways that you've viewed yourself or spoken to yourself just while you've been here these days. The attempt to kind of censor your experience, the tendency to make what's happening Wrong in some way these sensations shouldn't be happening I shouldn't be like that I shouldn't have that kind of reaction I shouldn't have taken so much lunch that (laughs) may be true (laughs) and then another also difficult area we try to get into control which is sort of obviously futile and yet we can still invest in it so from trying to control others and trying to control ourselves we then we try to control what others might be thinking of us good luck with that again heard from people in the retreat this week it's common, you might notice it yourself some anxiety about as if we're trying to control our self-image from the outside a lot of, lot of hard work can go into that a lot of second guessing a lot of um, becoming a kind of a ghost of ourselves a version of ourselves a facsimile of ourselves that we think is the version that the other will approve of or at least a version that the other won't disapprove of or won't dislike us for and just how how kind of far away we get from an easeful, natural expression of ourselves. When that's filtered through the anticipation of what she might think, what he might say, what they might do if you know, if I do that, or if I say that, or if they would see that I'm like that. It might be just again reflected in the being here, in the simplicity of you know, needing to move one's posture. And having a whole drama play out of what the people in front or behind might think or feel if I move my posture. The concern that I might disturb others. Like I said to somebody yesterday, it's impossible to disturb anybody else. Impossible. Others may feel disturbed, but that's their business. <clears throat> And then we, you know, we come to an environment like this and there's that sort of layering of spiritual control. We point in these teachings a lot to liberation, freeness, ease, love, compassion, peace, wisdom, clarity. Hmm, beautiful qualities, but that can be a really, um, a diff- that's like a set-up. If we're not careful, for us to imagine that's what should be happening when we meditate, for example, that's what I should be feeling. And it's been two days now, for goodness sake. <laughs> I really ought to be peaceful and wise by now. And then, when, you know, even though the, the thread of the teachings or encouragements through the week is you know, to make room for what is, to be gracious with what's here. But there's no wrong experience. But, you know, how easily when anger or resentment or, or uh, hurt arises in some way, we make it wrong. We feel like it shouldn't be here. The fact is, you know, to whatever extent, there's the, some unresolved relationship with any of those things, anger, hurt, uh, etc. To whatever the, uh, There's an unresolved relationship with those things... formed in our habit mind... To that extent... Those... Those... That movement of mind can get triggered by anything. You know, a small thing on retreat... The way somebody breathes... We can get furious about. There's a condition... A syndrome... In retreats called the Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> and it's when we just fixate on somebody, poor soul, they're just going about their <laughs> business, right? But somehow they become the repository of all that's wrong with our retreat. I remember just <laughs> once, you know, I got trained in, in um, monasteries and, and ashrams in India, but one leaves one's. Uh, Chapals, one's uh, flip flops, you know, outside the, when you go into the Dharma hall, you leave your flip flops very neatly together. It's a mindfulness practice, right? It just becomes part of the form, you leave your flip flops neatly and you go inside. And yeah, it's, it's nice, nice. It's, you, and, but when people didn't leave their <laughs> flip flops neatly, I could get incredibly reactive about that. Right? It wasn't really about the flip flops, it certainly really wasn't about the, the person. Just, but they become an opportunity, right, for the unresolved relationship with anger, self-righteousness, indignation, spiritual pride—you know—all of that to rush in, and then I leave, and then my flip-flops, and then, oh my god! But you know, maybe that's familiar in, in some or other version. And it's not wrong. It's partly why I mention it, like, to give some air to the way self-righteousness or pettiness or um, indignation or irritation can arise. It's not a wrong thing. It's not something that we should keep out. Sometimes the tendency to relate to those things, initially by just like buying into them and really ranting for a while... And then we get tired of that, and we kind of flip in the other direction. We feel sort of ashamed, oh I, should, I shouldn't have, as if I've got this kind of disastrous secret, you know, life that if anybody knew about, was it Ramdas, or somebody talking about. It. Imagine if your thought process were projected on a screen at the front of the hall. <laughs> And, you know, the, there's, there's an element of control in both sides, right? Having this fixed idea about how flip-flops should be left, right? And this kind of, you know, megalomania, sort of fascistic vision. Everybody should leave their flip-flops in the way I leave my flip-flops. That's the correct way to leave flip-flops. There's only one way to leave flip-flops, right? Edict. All meditators, and I'm the teacher, I could write this stuff out, you have to do it, right? All people must leave their flip-flops in a certain way. And of course, that's the kind of caricature version of it, but that's like, oh, just to see how, how invested we can get. But there's equally the control in the other way, they're trying to control our mind so that um, these so-called unspiritual impulses or states shouldn't arise. I shouldn't feel like that. That shouldn't be happening. I'm trying to keep them out. Trying to meditate them away. Trying to go back to the breath. As if the breath will save me from this other stuff. You know what the opposite of the vipassana vendetta is? Vipassana romance. (laughs) We fixate on some lovely being in the retreat. Who obviously is going to be our future is with them, and they leave their flip flops so exquisitely. <laughs> <laughs> mm. so then, of course, naturally, lust, sexual fantasy can really can really blow through our practice very strongly. So, Idea we talk about relinquishing when we come on retreat. There's this sort of strange idea that we just relinquish. Oh, are they going to be celibate while we're here? There's some guideline about, uh, um, okay, see, I can't even remember what it is, uh, refraining from any kind of sexual contact. Sometimes that's ambiguous, what does that mean? It clearly means we're not going in each other's rooms, but does it also include masturbation? And no, I don't know, and I'd better not ask because we're British and it's just <laughs> embarrassing, and uh, okay, we'll put it aside. we have relinquished it, we've left it alone. But hey, sexual fantasy hasn't maybe left you alone. And so just the heat, lust, fantasy can be playing out hugely. And anyway, there's whatever layers there are of sexual shame uh, in our own history, many of us. And then we easily get the idea that that's, that's some kind of wrong thing. Or we, ju- we try to control it. Right? We, the, it, we it control around, And hey, religious history is full of how trying to control sexuality doesn't work out so well. right? And it doesn't matter whether we look at the Catholic uh, Church and the priestly abuses of children, etc., etc., or whether we look closer to home in the Buddhist world and the various Tibetan Rinpoches and others who uh, have been uh, exposed for kind of grossly manipulative and abusive sexual relationships with students, etc. And yet, again, a different scale maybe, but here we are sitting on our cushion and Maybe for some time just investing in and being carried away by and kind of, you know, swept up in sexual fantasy. And then comes the other side and we just... I mean, that's maybe not the ideal. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. laughs> but this attempt to basically to, to squash it, suppress it, get rid of it in some way. You know, it's not a It's not a monster. What, if, what, if, what would be the middle way, whether with anger or with lust? What if we weren't trying to control it? What if, we, what if we'd kind of seen through the futility of the acting it out and the investing in it and the whipping it up and the, in getting into story and scenario? But equally, what if we weren't trying to control its appearances? didn't have some idea of whether it should or shouldn't be here, didn't have some idea of what I should be like in this moment. Maybe then we'd just be able to attend to the energy of it, the heat of it, the aliveness of it. Anger actually has a lot of aliveness, dynamism, strength. Very interesting to, to make room for anger to stream through. And it may, of course, have an object and a story and a, a scenario to it, but we don't need to invest in that. It's to allow the heat of that. That's how those unresolved relationships with difficult emotions get digested in us. We're no longer afraid of them. Not trying to act them out, not trying to get rid of them welcoming of, allowing of, receptive to. And similarly with lust. Right? There's something exquisitely beautiful in the middle of ero- erotic energy that we might find actually we can really just make room for. The kind of the longing for intimacy. The, the kind of the, 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 the entering into we were just speaking about entering into that movement, eros, connection, seduction, without the without all the embellishment of story and scenario and when and how and if and who, and also without the without the shame, without the suppression, without the the attempt to kind of to distract in various ways. And the more we investigate our tendency to control, the more we uh, soften our ideas about what should or shouldn't be happening. The more we relinquish that sense of control, the more easily, the more fluidly, the more freely we we um, we accommodate, we make room for. We, Bear gently with the arisings and passings of these different things. So, what control do we have over what happens? And basically none. Right? And like I was saying earlier, we might disagree with that. We could give some examples. But we don't have any control over what happens. What happens, happens we can make some response to what happens but that's already after the fact if I start to feel cold now I don't have any control over it as it happens I might just choose to put a sweater on we can respond skillfully to what happens but what happens happens it's only retrospectively that we apply the idea that uh, this happened and I decided to We, we apply the agency, right, not in a conventional sense, of course we we'll go here, do that, but in an existential sense we apply the agency retrospectively. But here we're not interested in retrospection, we're interested in introspection, you could say, or immediospection. It's noticing what's happening now. Are you making this happen? Any of it? Do you make yourself feel this a certain way? Is this experience controllable? Buddha speaks about two kinds of karma. I don't mean karma in the cosmic sense, right? But karma, just in terms of you know the way. Um, the cause and effect, right? The way this makes that happen. So there's one kind of karma we can do absolutely nothing about, and that's the way the karma of the past is ripening in the present. Right? That's what gives cause to what happens now. If I start to feel cold now, it's because of you know the window's been left open, or I haven't got enough clothes on, or the temperature's dropped, or whatever. <laughs> if a particular thought or mind state appears in my experience it's, ju- it's the results of you know, whatever the formative conditions have been prior to this moment there's nothing, there nothing we not in any kind of control about the way our experience in the past actions in the past perceptions in the past have a, a shaping and giving rise to experience in the present no control And then there's the other kind of karma, which is the way what we're we're doing, the actions in the present, will start to shape the future. And that's where we we can influence our experience. Ordinarily, even though we speak about uh, control and decision, etc., ordinarily most people don't have much control in either domain. Right? We don't have any control about what's happening. But mostly, even what we talk about as our decisions and responses to what's happening are kind of Pavlovian. Right? We react based on you know, our, our conditioning. If somebody say, insults us, we say, so I decided to you know, do X or Y. But it's, it's disingenuous, actually, to speak of a decision. Mostly what happens is the impact happens, in this case an insult, and the response is, the, re- the reaction happens in accordance with our conditioning. Some of us, condition- some of us we get offensive in, re- in return and sort of fight back. Some of us, maybe the tendency is to more co- collapse. Some of us, we kind of take the, um, the anger inwards and start blaming ourselves. Some of us, we might get very fearful and try to escape. Some of us, we go very abstract and start to kind of justify, etc., etc. But that's not really a decision. Mostly we're not controlling our responses. We, we just, we're just um, activated by habit. But then we come to a practice like this, where we're, where we're bringing a close and curious and caring attention to the way experience is forming. We have this practice of letting go of control, not trying to control breath, body, sensation, thought, sound, emotion, allowing it to show up, allowing it to be uh, made room for in this open sphere of awareness. And ironically, the more we relinquish our sense of control, our belief that we can control or should control our experience, the closer we are able to be to the way it shows up. And the closer we are to it, the more attuned we are, the more naturally an attuned response happens, a skillful response, an appropriate response, a gracious response. That gracious response doesn't really feel like my property. It doesn't feel like I'm the owner of, the manager of, the decider of, the controller of. It starts to feel much more like just a kind of, you know, Buddhists might say dharma in action. Christians might say grace. Or what's the Christian prayer about? Make me an instrument of thy peace. Make me an instrument of thy peace. It might might start to feel like the response is an instrument of that (coughs) deep attunement. An instrument of God, life, dharma, whatever name we might like to give so what if we were to use this opportunity it's already very well set up for us to kind of relinquish some of the outer controls of our lives in the ways we've been uh, I've been just pointing to what about if we were to pay close attention to the impulses to control in, you know, small ways, subtle ways throughout the day. What if we were to dare to look beyond those impulses to control? What if we were really to allow that over which we have no control over, the way experience is showing up right now, and be close enough to it that a wise response an uncontrived response a free response might come forward what if we were to know our freeness of being at home in this wide open uncontrollable constantly surprising life That's the promise of this practice, the opportunity of this life, and the freeness of this being. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit